We are in chapter 6, Mishnah number 6. This is the 48 ways to wisdom, and we've covered many different ways to receive wisdom. And now we're up to way number 12, and this is Bepilpul Talmidim, with the engagement of study, of rigorous, debative, argumentative study with our students. If you want wisdom, one of the ways to receive wisdom is via teaching, and specifically via engaging in this form of study called pilpul, which is the analysis and clarification of knowledge via questioning, via probing, via critically examining in a dialectic fashion with students. If you want to receive Torah, if you want to receive wisdom, one of the ways to do that is to have students and specifically to engage with the students in the form of teaching and study called pilpul, which we're translating as in a debating question and answer format. So, of course, it's very easy for us to realize how teaching is going to be a form of study. You would think, just simply put, well, if you're teaching something, then you are conveying wisdom that you already have, and therefore you're not absorbing new wisdom. So just on first analysis, it seems kind of interesting that a way to study, a way to learn, a way to acquire more wisdom is via conveying extant wisdom that you have within you outwardly. That's upon first analysis. But of course, you know that that is not true. When you teach, when you are forced to articulate your knowledge, when you are forced to project your knowledge, when you are forced to share your knowledge, that in itself helps clarify and crystallize the knowledge and elevate it to a higher level. And this is why someone who has had the great privilege, the great fortune to be a teacher, to convey wisdom to others, to be able to educate other people, that's an experience that you cherish. And once you've got a taste of it, you're not willing to forfeit it. There's an interesting law in the Talmud about someone who hires a worker. You hire a worker and they are working for you. But today there's no orders. Today there's no calls. Today there's just no work for them to do. But you hire them. So the law is you have to pay them. You have to pay them. Even though they're not working for you because you hired them, you are required to pay them for their time. But how much must you pay them? So the Talmud tells us that you have to pay them like an idle worker, which means the assumption of the Talmud is that people want to get paid. People don't want to work. They'd rather sit home and chill out. But they need to get paid, and therefore they're only going to get paid if they work. And therefore they're willing to suffer to work to get paid. You have a laborer in the field. You got to plow the field in the hot sun. Who wants to do that? Who wants to do that? No one wants to do that. At least that's the assumption. But you want to feed your family. You're hungry. You want to have nice things. You want to get paid. And therefore, you're willing to suffer in order to get paid. That's the assumption that the Talmud has. But 
what would someone be willing to accept to not work? Is there a minimum amount of money that a person would be willing to accept in order to experience, so to speak, mandatory retirement for a day? Suppose you pay a laborer $1,000 a day or $100 a day, but they're forced to work. Would they accept, let's say, $50 and then not work? Or whatever that number is, it's going to be less than what they are typically paid. That is what you need to pay your worker who is idle. But the halacha makes an exception. There is one occupation that we are assuming the person wants to do it. They're not just doing it as an excuse to get paid. And that is a teacher. And we assume that a teacher would not agree to a pay cut in order to not teach. The only profession, according to Jewish law, that we assume the person wants to do it, not just as a means to get paid, is a teacher. And that's because the experience of being able to assemble and acquire and digest knowledge, and then being able to spread that, to influence others, that's such an enriching experience, people don't want to forfeit it. The Talmud tells us that under the reign the cruel and torturous reign of Hadrian, the Roman emperor, he made very restrictive, draconian rules against the Jewish people studying Torah. And one of the rules is that the public study of Torah was prohibited. And during that time, Rabbi Akiva flouted the rules and taught Torah publicly. And he was arrested. And the Talmud tells us that when he was in prison, the students were desperate. They wanted their teacher. And they would holler questions to him. And he would hear them and respond to them from his prison cell, from the dungeon that he was placed in. And one of the students was the great Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And he came and he beseeched, so to speak, Rabbi Akiva to keep on teaching, and Rabbi Akiva responded with a line. He said, more than a calf wants to suckle, the cow wants to be milked. Meaning that the student, of course, benefits from this relationship. The, the student is able to absorb, to suckle, so to speak, to gain the milk, to gain the wisdom from the teacher. But the teacher actually benefits even more. And therefore, teaching is not something that a person wants to forfeit. They cherish it if they've had that opportunity. And there's a few reasons for this. One of the images of what teaching is really like, it's akin to a glass. A glass. A glass of wine or of milk or something like that. And if the glass gets full, but it's still absorbing new liquid, it begins to overflow. If you are a receptacle of knowledge, there is a cap, there is a limit, there is a theoretical point that once you reach that point, it's not possible for you to hold anymore without spreading it and allowing it to overflow to others. You have no choice but to spread it. When you have something wonderful, something insightful, something 
transformative, something life-changing within you, you're going to feel an urge to share it. And if you're able to do that, and you help other people improve their knowledge, improve their thinking, improve their learning, that is incredibly enriching and rewarding. And once you get a taste of it, you are hooked. It's such a meaningful experience. It's so rewarding, it is just impossible to abandon. And here we learn in this Mishnah that teaching is actually also a form of learning. When you teach, you are required to have a grasp of knowledge, a grasp of the subject that is orders of magnitude more clear than when you just study and don't profess it forward. No matter how well you know a given subject, once you're forced to teach it to others and you have to adapt what you know to what someone else needs to know, and every student is different and every student it clicks in a different way, so you have to learn how to rephrase what you know in 10 or 12 or 15 different ways. You have to learn how to present it in a way that it actually fits and is absorbed by the student. Such an experience will actually elevate that knowledge and you will learn from teaching. And the Mishnah emphasizes specifically to teach to students. You could have friends, you could have peers, you could have colleagues, and you can teach to them, but you learn more from teaching to students. The Talmud records one of the great sages as saying, I've learned a lot from my teachers. But from my peers, I've learned even more than I learned from my teachers. And from my students, I've learned even more than all of them. When you are forced to teach to someone who is beneath you, so to speak, in knowledge, someone who is lower than you in knowledge, that experience makes you study even more. And the Maral here in his comment tells us that there is a fundamental difference between how you teach a peer versus how you teach a student. When you have someone who's equal to you, but they're on your level, you could rely on, on jargon, on vague words and concepts. You could just kind of create this opaque mishmash of complexity. You could just accept some premises and assumptions. It doesn't have to be so super clear because we, we all know what we're talking about. The demands on attaining clarity are much lower for a peer. But suppose you have to teach this to a child. When you have to teach something to a child, every component of your message has to be clear and understandable. The great scientist Richard Feynman would say, the way to learn, the way to understand something completely, if you could figure out how to teach it to a child, that's how you know that you understand it clearly. But of course, we don't need to go to modern-day scientists. We have this already in the Mishnah 2,000 years ago. 
the more basic the knowledge of the student, the more of a novice they are, the more clarity you must have in the subject in order to teach it to them. If you cannot take anything for granted, you cannot skip any steps in building an idea, every idea, every component, every module of the bigger concept has to be clarified on its own, that is a way to achieve stunning clarity. I know that in our in our other series that we do on the uh, Torah 101 podcast, the 13 Principles of Faith, right now we're studying about Messiah. And this is a subject that's, well, it's a pretty basic subject in Jewish life. And we all kind of know about it and what it's like, and we have maybe a fuzzy picture of what it looks like. But if you want to study it with rigor and comprehensive analysis and go through all the sources to the best of your ability and to organize it into, you know, 10 or 20 hours worth of content, you do that, you will know it very, very well. And I encourage all of you to go back to the Torah 101 podcast and listen to some of the episodes that we did on some of the other principles of Jewish faith. I think it was 17 episodes on the divinity of the Torah. You could say, well, the Torah is divine. We know. We read the story. The Almighty conveyed the Torah to Moshe. And through Moshe, we got the whole Torah. And it's divine and wonderful. But what does that mean? What's the evidence? What are the components of the Torah? How does it all work? What is the interrelationship of written Torah and oral Torah? We did 17 episodes on that subject. That is a rigorous and comprehensive study. And I've felt that for me, it really transformed my knowledge about these subjects. If you have to explain a concept in English, and it has to be understandable to someone who doesn't have the same assumptions that you have, someone that doesn't have the same background in Jewish learning that you do, the only way to achieve that level is to make sure that you really, really know it yourself. In a similar fashion, the Talmud tells us that praiseworthy is he who comes to heaven and their study is in their hands. Their study is in their hands. So simply what this means, well, that they have a firm grasp, it's on their fingertips, as we say, of Torah knowledge. The Marshana's comment, he says something else. What does it mean to have your Torah study in your hands? It means that you wrote it all down. You took comprehensive notes and you organized it in written form. And that's why the sages are called scribes. Just as teaching others helps you see any flaws or gaps in your arguments and your reasoning and your knowledge, in a similar way, when you're forced to write something down and organize in written form your thoughts and your ideas, that compels you to see where the flaws are and to fix them. Writing is thus a form of 
clarification of thinking. And here we learn in this Mishnah that one of the ways to achieve wisdom is via pilpul talmidim. Not just teaching, but teaching in a way that's defined as pilpul. Study is wonderful. Knowledge is great. But the level of learning that is required to achieve wisdom is called pilpul, which means to ask questions and to seek answers, and to gain progressively more and more clarity. Now, it's interesting, the Talmud of the Book of Shabbos, page 31a, tells us that when a person is summoned before the heavenly tribunal, they ask that person a series of questions. And one of the questions is, did you engage in knowledge with the form of study called pilpul? Did you really wrestle with the knowledge. They don't ask, did you study? Do you have knowledge? When someone really engages with learning and they're questioning every assumption and they're analyzing and debating every conclusion and they're trying to turn it over from every angle to see if it's airtight, if it's solid, that's an example of knowledge really being alive really percolating within a person. The Almighty doesn't want us to become robots, to become just a repository of knowledge. If someone has dry and bland knowledge, evidently that's not enough to pass the heavenly tribunal. It has to be alive. And here we're told that one of the ways to teach and one of the ways to learn is to take the knowledge and to dice it up and to examine it completely with great focus and scrutiny. The advice they give to teachers is if you're a chef, you work in the kitchen and then once the dish is done and it's all ready, it's got all the garnishing, it's, it looks perfect, then you bring it out to the customer, to the consumer. But that's not a good teacher. A good teacher has to take the patron into the kitchen and show them how the sausage is made. Show them every element that went into arriving at the finished product. That's what it means, pilpul. It means to really look at every angle and really see how you've arrived at that conclusion. When you teach, and when you teach in this manner, your clarity in what you study and what you know is immeasurably different. If you asked a student, here is a piece, a piece of Talmud, a piece of scripture, some idea, what are the five questions that jump out at you? Find me five questions that you have in this. That's a way of training them to think and to study in an in investigative way. And if you do that, you're able to kind of find portals of more insight into, uh, into that subject. This is way number 12, teaching students via this form of teaching, via rigorous 
and comprehensive analysis, questions and answers, really trying to get to the heart of the matter and not taking anything for granted.